I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. The title of the message is The Armor of God. And this is the, the third part in a rather lengthy section, a, a short section of Scripture that we have drawn out to articulate the various pieces of armor at our disposal. We have been surveying the battlefield together that Paul refers to in this chapter, Ephesians chapter 6, and we have learned some very important lessons in recent days. We have learned that God requires spiritual soldiers, that's you and I if you're a follower of Christ, to have spiritual courage on the battlefield. We have learned the important lesson and continue to learn this important lesson of what it means to put on the armor of God. We have not only learned the important lesson of of putting on the armor of God, but we have also learned the proper posture for a spiritual soldier. The only posture available for that soldier in this context is standing. We are to stand, and such a posture signifies several things. Standing signifies, first of all, seriousness. You remember that the Christian life is serious, serious business. We are engaged in war. Therefore, the Word of God calls upon you and I to stand. Additionally, this posture of standing indicates a position of steadfastness. We do not give up in the Christian life. We have steadfast resolve. Additionally, it indicates spiritual strength. As we stand, we indicate to the world, we indicate to our enemy, the devil, that we possess spiritual strength. Standing, additionally, signifies conviction. We have conviction about the Word of God. We have conviction about our theology. We have conviction about doctrine. Standing, additionally, signifies maturity. It tells the enemy that we are prepared, we are ready, we are standing in the battle, and we are growing in maturity. And finally, we've learned that standing produces hope. As we stand on the promises of God, as we are are ready to, to march onto the battlefield, we are people who are with a great deal of hope, all because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But above all, we've learned that standing in this battlefield signifies a specific mindset. And that mindset that we have reviewed again and again and again is this, is we will never surrender. Amen? We will never surrender. It's one thing for Winston Churchill to say to the British Parliament, we will never surrender. And what a moment that was in the history of the United Kingdom. But it's an altogether different proposition for a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to say, we will never surrender with no equivocation, with no footnotes, with no commas. We will surrender. We will never surrender, period. And so since we are called to put on the armor of God, we took time several weeks ago to begin slowly and methodically to look into the war chest that is at our disposal. And we began with the first piece of armor that surfaces for us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. And as we pulled that piece of armor out of that war chest, we learned that we have the belt of truth. 
And there are three observations we made about that belt. First, we are told to gird up our loins with the belt of truth. We are to guard our minds with the belt of truth. And we are to go into the battlefield prepared. When you, bear, when you wear the belt of truth, you see, you are in a position of spiritual readiness. You are in a posture that is committed to living according to the word of God and the ways of God. You are no longer living according to the pattern of this world. You are living according to the very precepts of God. Then we looked into the war chest and we we learned that there's another piece of armor that Paul refers to as the breastplate of righteousness. And the breastplate of righteousness, Paul had in his mind's eye a, a portrait of the Roman soldier who put that breastplate on that covered both his front as well as his back. And we learned here that Christ's righteousness is sufficient to protect us. That the breastplate of righteousness militates against every ounce of so-called man-made righteousness or self-effort. We learn that the, the positional righteousness of Christ makes possible the practical, daily, righteous living. And that, again, is what the breastplate of righteousness signifies. This is practical righteousness. We live practical lives of righteousness because of the grace that is given us through the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we discovered a third piece of armor. It's the piece of armor that we refer to and Paul refers to as the shoes, the shoes of the gospel of peace. Two important observation, observations that we have made. Wearing the shoes implies that the saint who wears the shoes is right with God. This saint is right with God. This saint has been reconciled. You see, a moment before our regeneration, we were not reconciled to a holy God. We were at odds with God. We, we were enemies of God. But because of the, the grace that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have now been made right with God. But wearing the shoes of the gospel of peace also signifies that we have, and whenever I say this, I, I, have, to, I have to pinch myself. Do you ever have to pinch yourself when you say, we have peace with God? Think about that. D- don't, don't take that for granted, because many people all around the world, thousands, millions of people do not yet enjoy peace with God. Once again, they're enemies of God. They're not reconciled to God. But all of you who have placed personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5 verse 1 says that you have peace with God. Now this morning, we turn our attention to the next piece, the fourth piece of armor in the war chest. And Paul refers to that as the shield of faith. I want to have you with your Bibles open and have you stand to your feet as we read this passage together once again. And the focus of our time this morning will be found in verse 16. But let me start in verse 13 for the context. Therefore, Paul says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the, the readiness of the gospel, given, readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up 
the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, as my eyes scanned those words in verse 16 to take up the shield of faith, I couldn't help but wonder how many have been looking forward to to walking through this section of scripture, that we would learn what it means to to see the, the fiery darts of the evil one extinguished. And so I think of the many in our congregation who who battle a various amount of temptations, who who battle depression, who who battle any number of sins that today that you would provide encouragement, that you would would help the one who doubts, that you would help the one who is discouraged, that you would help the one who has been deceived, that you would help anyone who is struggling with depression that today we would walk out of this sanctuary having, having a better idea of what it means to live the Christian life because we spent time in your word. So we ask the Spirit, Holy Spirit, that you would apply this truth to our hearts and to our minds, make these things practical so that we would live them out on the battlefield that we walk on in just a few short minutes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. For some time now, Americans have been consumed with the question of a possible nuclear attack from North Korea. For years, the rogue nation has been flexing their muscles, if you will, and have even suggested that the technology is in place that could land a missile on the American mainland. I have to confess to you that I have heard this discussion, I have read the news reports for for many years, and North Korea is not the only country that is flexing their muscles, but I remember not giving it a whole lot of thought until I read in recent times that one of those missiles could conceivably land in Seattle. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist, pardon the pun, to figure out that if a nuclear rocket could land in Seattle, that would have a very significant effect on you and I. I recently read an article in the Washington Post entitled, quote, If North Korea fires a nuclear missile at the United States, how could it be stopped? Unquote. The lead few sentences in the article begin with these very interesting words. North Korea, the writer says, can make a nuclear bomb and has an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of reaching the U.S. mainland. If it launches such a missile, the United States has a $40 billion system designed to destroy that bomb in space. Don't you feel much better? But listen to the next sentence. It's the next sentence that caught my attention. And I quote, 
What's unknown is whether or not this system will actually succeed. And the article walks through and explains in very basic language how this $40 billion system works. North Korea first would launch an intercontinental ballistic missile. Satellites would detect this missile and track this missile. The missile releases the warhead and then the decoys. And then interceptors are launched, which releases a kill vehicle. That's the part I like. And then the kill vehicle picks out the warhead and slams into the warhead and destroys it. Now you should feel much better. But here's how the article concludes. And I quote once again. If North Korea sent six ICBM warheads in the United States and we got five of them, you'd say, hey, we got five out of six. Not bad, says Bruce McDonald, former assistant director for the national security at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. But he continues. But if you ended up losing Seattle, you'd still feel pretty bad, even though it was over 80 percent effective. Unquote. Well, the Bible tells us this, that Satan, the arch enemy of every follower of Jesus, launches his flaming darts at followers of Christ every day. You know, I had to think twice about using the example of a possible nuclear attack from one of our enemies. I thought to myself, what about children? What would children think at Christ Fellowship? And then the thought struck me that this is something that our country has been thinking about for many, many years. Therefore, it is a reality that we must face. But then the next thought popped into my mind. What about Satan? North Korea is like a a tiny speck of dust in comparison to the power that Satan has in this world. And I say again, the Bible tells us that Satan launches his flaming darts at followers of Christ every day. But the Bible also leaves us with an amazing amount of hope. The Bible tells us about our defense against these attacks. And the defense is found in verse 16. Paul refers to it as the shield of faith. I want to preach a message that will be very basic and simple this morning. A message that you will be able to walk away, get in your cars and go home. And that you would have some, some new principles and a new set of, uh, uh, really an arsenal at your disposal to use when you are tempted this week. So let me have a show of hands. How many of you were tempted this last week? Six of you. We were all tempted. And if I asked how many of you were tempted a hundred times... My suspicion would be 100% of you would say, I was tempted and tempted and tempted. First John tells us that there is the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are things that, that are sent to us on an ongoing basis. The flaming darts of the evil one are sent in our direction. And so as we look at the shield of faith, I want to look at six very important words. These are descriptive words that help us to understand what the, the shield of faith is all about. And then I want to close our time with some practical points of application. The first word, and we, we begin very basically, it's the word covering. Covering. 
And the reason I like this word covering is it, it points to what the Bible refers to as the shield. The shield. Now, once again, Paul, as he's writing this letter to the believers in Ephesus, he has in mind the Roman soldier. He sees this Roman soldier probably right across the room as he is, he is in, in this, this, this place of confinement. And he's looking at this Roman soldier, and he's no doubt seen Roman soldiers in days past. We've seen that that Roman soldier has a belt. He's girded the belt. We've seen that that Roman soldier has the, the breastplate. And the Roman soldier has a pair of shoes. No, no soldier would even think about walking onto the battlefield in a shoeless Joe Jackson condition, if you will. But now he's also visualizing in his mind's eye the shield of faith. It's a, a covering The Greek word translated shield literally means a long oblong object. Scholars tell us that this was comprised of a a large piece of wood that would cover the body for the soldier in the battlefield. That that wood would likely be covered with some kind of a leather-like material so that when the enemy would fire his darts in the direction of that soldier that the darts who were lit on fire would hit that leather and be extinguished. The word shield is used in the Old Testament as a handheld banner of self-defense. It's a barrier of self-defense, if you will. And I want to show you a few scriptures that point us in this direction. The first is in Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 21. We've put that on the screen for you. The Bible reads, You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shields of mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Over in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 7, we read about a shield bearer, and we read that the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. Then in the little minor prophet, the book of Nahum, chapter 2, verse 3, the shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them, and his cypress spears are brandished. We all see, we will see as we study this further, that the shield here in chapter 6, has a very specific purpose. And of course, it's to extinguish the fiery darts of the evil one. This is a covering. I want to move forward and look with you at the word commitment. The word commitment. If you look at chapter 6, verse 16, Paul tells us something very interesting. He tells us to take up, take up the shield of faith. That word that is translated take up comes from a Greek word that means to take and to lift upward. It means to acquire, to seize, to grasp. There's a a proactivity here, I see, as the soldier is called upon to, to take up the shield. But it is the tense of this verb that is striking to me. It's written in the aorist tense, which means this. It it points to a a point-in-time action. This is a a point-in-time decision where you and I as followers of Jesus are called upon to take up the shield of faith. It's It's a verb of commitment. Your commitment to take up the shield of faith requires strong resolution. Nothing will 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 
betray you. Nothing will confuse you. You are resolved to take up the shield of faith. Additionally, your commitment to take up this shield of faith requires boldness. Many of us struggle with with being lackadaisical in the Christian life, being passive in the Christian life. But this, this act requires an act of boldness, an act of faithfulness. This act of commitment also requires an act of obedience. Why? We are told, we are called upon to take up the shield of faith. And so this act of commitment really requires courage on our part. It requires faith on our part. And like the other pieces of armor, there is no negotiating here. There is no time in the Christian life when we, when we sit down with, with our Savior, with our commanding officer and say, Yeah, but did you think about this, Lord? Did you think about that, Lord? Or maybe Paul had this in mind. No, the Bible tells us in no uncertain terms we are called upon to take up the shield of faith, which demands commitment. May I ask this morning, as your pastor, what, what is preventing you from taking up the shield of faith? Because if we don't take up our shield of faith, we are like sitting ducks on the battlefield. Can you identify this morning what is preventing you from being fully committed in this regard? And my, my suspicion is this, is if we will, if we will agree together as a church family, that we will take up the shield of faith. We are in a position that God wants us to be in, a position to fight, a position to win. It requires commitment. But there's a third word I want to commend to your attention, and that is the word comprehensive. Paul instructs the the Ephesian believers and all subsequent Christ followers to take up the shield of faith when? In all circumstances. That is, no matter what we face in the Christian life, he says, take it up. Take up the shield of faith. There's never a time where, where we have a break in the Christian life. Each day we need to take up the shield of faith. In the Christian Standard Bible, I love the way the, the translators have, have turned this phrase. It says, in every situation... In every situation, take up the shield of faith. And so, young people, we take up the shield of faith at school. We take up the shield of faith at work. We take up the shield of faith when we go on vacation. We take up the shield of faith when we are tempted. We take up the shield of faith when we are discouraged. We take up our shield of faith in those moments of trial and adversity. In all circumstances, Paul says, we take up the shield of faith. It is a comprehensive command. Fourth, I want you to see the word critical. Critical. Because as I indicated a moment ago, without the shield of faith, if we don't take up the shield of faith, we are open game. We are open game. We are sitting ducks for the enemy. When a soldier neglects his his shield on the battlefield, he is open, quite frankly, to the attack of the enemy. It's interesting because as a person who enjoys movies, I had movies galore going through my mind when I studied this passage. I had, I had Braveheart going through my mind. I had Lord of the Rings going through my mind. I had all these, these, these war films that I have watched over the years, and especially Lord of the Rings. As you see these soldiers on the battlefield with their shields deflecting these flaming arrows. 
You see, without the shield of faith, we are not only left exposed to the attacks of the enemy, we actually invite the attack of the enemy. Now, Scripture tells us that the devil hurls, according to the English Standard Version, flaming darts at the people of God. The New American Standard and the Christian Standard Bible translates this Greek word as flaming arrows. Both are appropriate. Flaming arrows, flaming darts. These are words that come from a Greek word that means a weapon that is forcibly thrown or projected on a target. The word could actually be translated as poison. Is the devil sends his poison in our direction. It can also be translated as missile. And I like to think of it like this. He hurls his poisonous missiles in our direction. Paul intensifies this phrase by adding the phrase, adding the word flaming. That is, these arrows or missiles are sent in our direction, and they are flaming, they are red hot, and they are intense. Have you experienced these flaming missiles, these poisonous missiles, even this morning? May I ask a question, and this is one of those rhetorical questions. I have no idea what the answer is. Actually, I think I do. But why is it that the flaming arrows are the hottest at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning? Have you ever thought about that? You're like, your kids are great throughout the week, but it gets to 8 o'clock and boom! It's like you're a soldier on the battlefield and you're putting your shield of faith up and those arrows are hitting you left and right. I think the answer for that is the sat- our enemy, Satan, knows that we're heading to church. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if, if many of you in the sanctuary faced temptation and accusation and any number of flaming darts hurled in your direction this morning and may experience those flaming darts this very minute. These flaming arrows are hot. These flaming arrows are intense. And they come with relentless force day after day after day. There's some examples of this Greek word that is translated for us here, flaming darts. The first is what I like to refer to as the the missile of deception. And there, there are so many different angles that we could take here, but I just want to give you a few examples of the strategy of the enemy. The first is what we refer to as the missile of deception. That is, the devil wants to trick you. He wants to confuse you. He wants to sow seeds of confusion in you. He wants you to to minimize doctrine. He wants you to set theology aside. It would shock you. It It would blow you away the number of times I have heard Christ followers who have told me as a pastor to stop emphasizing theology so much. And Galen, I'm going to quote you. Galen has grown famous over the years for saying something like this. Excuse me? You you want to minimize theology? Excuse me? That is a diabolical attack of the enemy. He wants you to grow fascinated with the world. He will do anything to get you to think that, that you are something. He will do anything to get you to think that being worldly is the way to go. He will do anything to prevent you from being a godly man or a godly woman. 
He will convince young people that being cool is the way to go. And I want to say to the young people, do you know there is nothing more satisfying and cool than being a godly young man or a godly young woman? And all the parents are saying, amen, praise the Lord, preach on, right? There is nothing more fulfilling than walking in a path of righteousness, walking in a path of godliness. Now, the Apostle Paul had a friend named Demas who was someone that was evidently not taking up his shield of faith, according to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Scripture tells us that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. But what happened to Demas? Demas was deceived. And Demas was deceived because he did not take up the shield of faith. Please hear this. The devil is a master of deception. And he is prepared to fire fire the missile of deception at you this very minute. In fact, the devil is so wily that it wouldn't surprise me if someone in the sanctuary is thinking, yeah, been there, done that, Pastor. I'll go it alone. I'll do it my way. I'll do it Frank Sinatra's way. You might be battling right now. You wonder if you should even be in church. Some of you are wondering if living the Christian life is really worth it. Some of you are wondering if historic Christianity is the real deal. Some of you are questioning what you hear from this pulpit or another pulpit. And the reason is that the arch enemy of your soul is firing relentless missiles of deception. And it's hitting you right between the eyes. Why? Because the shield of faith is not in place. This is the missile of deception. There's also the missile of doubt. And the missile of doubt is the, the evil cousin of the missile of deception. And quite frankly, the devil wants you and I to, to doubt the promises of God. The devil wants you and I to doubt the word of God. The devil wants you to doubt the character of God. I vividly remember as an undergraduate student at Multnomah University, it only happened a few times. But the times it happened really frightened me as I thought to myself, I wonder, I wonder if it's really true. My suspicion is that many of you have had that happen once or twice, a handful of times or even more. Is it really true? Please remember, it is the devil's objective to prevent you from believing the promises of God, from believing the word of God, from having confidence in the character of God. And he is an expert deceiver. He's been doing it throughout the days of redemptive history. This is exactly the strategy that he employed with Eve. You remember what he said in Genesis 3, verse 1. Please recall, God makes people created an original righteousness with the ability to please God. And he goes to Eve, the devil goes to Eve disguised as a serpent. And he said, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I find it interesting that the devil did not appear to Eve as a roaring lion as first Peter describes him. He's much trickier than that. He went as a slithering snake and he questions the character and the word of God. And then he says in Genesis 3, 3, you will not surely die. You will not surely die. Yesterday, 
I'm at the hospital, fourth floor in the waiting area across from the nurse's station. And you hear a lot of interesting conversations at the hospital. And I overheard a conversation between a nurse behind the desk and a nurse on the other side of the desk. And one nurse said to another nurse, you believe in reincarnation, don't you? Oh, yes, I believe in reincarnation. And all of a sudden, my book became very unimportant because I, I think I did something like this and listened in. There are worldviews where people believe that they die and then they come back and then they die and they come back until they get it right, until they work out their so-called bad karma. Where did the lie of reincarnation come from? It comes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 3. The devil, the slithering snake, says to Eve, you shall not surely die. We know that that's not the truth, right? We know that reincarnation is not a principle from the word of God. Why? Hebrews says man is destined to die once and then face judgment. You don't get a second chance. The devil says that when God, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This morning, you may be doubting the goodness of God. Others are doubting the word of God. Some of you might have been doubting God as long as you can remember and the arch enemy of our souls will relentlessly and tirelessly fire the, mess, the missile of doubt, hoping, 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 hoping that one day you will give up. That one day you will throw in the towel and walk out of the boxing ring. This is the missile of doubt. The third missile is one that I mentioned as we prayed together this morning. That is the missile of depression. And I know that, that several of you have, have faced seasons or are facing seasons of depression. See, the devil wants to mesh, mess with your emotions. He wants to lead you, I'm using Bun, John Bunyan language, he wants to lead you into the swamp of despondence. And if the enemy can coerce you into the swamp of despondence, he knows that once he gets you there, he can continue to fire those missiles. He can fire the missile of deception and the missile of doubt, hoping upon all hope that you will give up in the Christian race. It surprises people. It surprises people when they learn that Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a godly, godly man, the prince of preachers, is a man who battled depression most of his adult life. I remember reading in one of the biographies about Spurgeon is his depression became so severe as he lived in the, in the center of, of downtown London where it rains and rains and rains, kind of like here. And the weather and all the series of events that surrounded his life, it got him so depressed that he would, he would go to Italy where it was more sunny and he would he would dry out in the italian sun for days on end all by himself and he would go back to his wife and family and he did this several times over the course of his life here's what spurgeon says he says my spirits were sunken so low that i could weep by the hour like a child and yet not know what i wept for some of you understand what that's like. 
where depression leads you to the point of such despair that someone asks you, what are you depressed about? And you say, I have no idea, but I just can't shut the tears off. Please know that you are in good company. The godly man that we so respect and Charles Haddon Spurgeon struggled with that same kind of depression. Another man we have such high regard for is King David, who struggled with depression as well. He said in Psalm 43, 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? I believe that if you are susceptible to depression, to discouragement, to melancholy, the devil will relentlessly fire this missile in your direction with the intent to sink you lower and lower and lower until you either quit the race or you are rendered totally ineffective. It took me years and years to figure this out, and I I mentioned it maybe in a moment of weakness, which this will also likely be a moment of weakness. It's been in recent days that I figured out that for me personally, Saturday nights are extremely difficult. I'm usually the last one to go to sleep in my family. And I'll lay awake thinking about the message. I'll lay awake thinking about Sunday. And some days I'll be overwhelmed with this kind of discouragement or even this kind of depression. And it happened last night. And I had this amazing thought. I thought, wait a minute, dummy, take up the shield of faith. Isn't that what we're called to do? We take up the shield of faith and when the arch enemy of our souls launches those missiles of deceit or doubt or depression at us, what does the word of God say happens? It extinguishes those arrows. That leads us to capability. We move from critical to capability. And the Bible tells us that the shield of faith gives us divine ability. Divine ability. And the group of people in my Veritas class this morning will know exactly what I'm talking about as I'm fascinated with the words ability or capability. And here we're told in verse 16 that we are given divine ability. Look at it with me. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you, don't miss this word, can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Here's the way the Christian Standard Bible translates this little verse. See if you can tell the difference. In every situation, take up the shield of faith and with it, you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Would you look in your English translation in verse 16 and look at the word can. Did you ever think with a Bible study method that you would focus on a word like can as a crucially important word? That word can comes from the Greek word that can also be translated as dynamite. Dynamite. Dunamai. You have supernatural dynamite-like ability, divine ability to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The word can also be translated as power. We have this divine power. That is, when we take up the shield of faith, God gives you and I power to extinguish the fiery darts of the devil. 
That word extinguish means to put out a fire or stop the flames, to, to snuff out or stop. I actually had visions of an illustration at this point. Ken, I, I thought of my friend Ken Olsom, and I know what he's thinking right now. Oh, you should have done it. Ken loves fire, right? When I was a youth pastor, I did an illustration with fire, and I burned a hole in the carpet. So uh, I decided not to play with fire today. But notice this, is that when we take up the shield of faith, we are given divine, supernatural ability to extinguish, to put out the fire, to stop the flames, to snuff out, to stop those fiery accusations and temptations of the evil one. Please notice with me that this divine ability is absolutely comprehensive. Paul says we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That means we have divine and supernatural ability to extinguish every accusation. Have you experienced one of those accusations this week? It goes something like this. You have a thought that runs through your mind. I have asked believers over the years... It's kind of a fascination of my mind, and I'm going to do it with you right now. Have you ever been singing? A, Jason and the worship team, they're leading us in this, this wonderful song about the, the majesty of God, the glory of God, the gospel. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or embarrass anyone, but most of you would raise your hands. Have you ever been singing one of those songs, and all of a sudden the most vile, hideous thought ran through your mind? I remember the first time it happened to me, I think I was in high school, and I thought... I'm not even a Christian. How could I be singing holy, holy, holy and have that thought pop into my mind? That is, the enemy of our souls is a master deceiver. He will, he will say something like this to you. You can't possibly be a follower of Christ if you had that thought run through your mind. But we have divine and supernatural ability to extinguish every accusation. We have divine and supernatural ability to extinguish every temptation. We have divine and supernatural ability to extinguish every one of the flaming arrows and darts that the enemy sends our way. Finally, notice the sixth word. It's the word confidence. And if I could have, I'm going to ask young people, okay, you with me? Can I get gross for a few minutes? For just a minute, is that okay? They're not giving me the okay. Okay, I'm not going to use the illustration. Chris, can I get gross just for a minute? Okay, Chris says absolutely. Thanks for the help over here. I want you to think about one of, uh, it's a food that I have enjoyed for a long, long time. I was going to put this on the board, but I thought, use your imagination. It's chili con carne. Anyone like chili con carne? You know what chili con Dan, yes, I never knew that. And Vivian, wonderful. I remember one time, Jereen, this is 20, 20, almost 25 years ago, Jereen decided, she's in the nursery, so we can talk about this. She went on this certain diet where she wasn't going to eat certain kinds of foods. And I had resolved I wasn't going on that diet. And she walked in with a good friend of hers, and I had made the biggest, massive plate of chili dogs you've ever seen in your life. And it just, it was heartbreaking. She sat there with her salad. She saw me eating my chili con carne. We all know what chili con carne is, right? It's chili con carne. Con is the Latin word translated with. What's the Latin word con? 
with. What's carne? This is the gross part. I'll come over here away from Chris. The carne is flesh. So Dan and Vivian, they, they're, they're fans of chili con carne along with me. That means that the three of us, we like chili with flesh. Chili with meat. Chili with meat. Look at this word confidence. Do you see something interesting in the word confidence? What's the prefix? Con. What's con mean? With. You're never going to think about confidence the same after this morning if you have not heard this yet. Con means with. How many of you know what sola fide means? This is a test. A Protestant Reformation slogan. Kyle, sola fide. Faith alone. Do you see fide in there? Fidence. Confidence is with what? It's with faith. Do you have confidence today? With faith. We take up the shield of faith, and when we do so, we are filled with confidence. We're filled with confidence. First Peter chapter 5, verse 9 speaks of this. John Piper says that faith, faith is the great devil defeater. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him and stand. We know something about standing now. Stand firm in the faith. Faith is the great devil defeater. Our faith is in the word of God. Our faith is in the promises of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if faith is the great devil defeater, we need to figure out how to nurture and strengthen our faith. If faith is the great devil feeder, defeater, we need to learn how to have more confide, more confidence. Piper says the way to thwart the devil is to strengthen the very thing he is trying most to destroy. What is he trying to destroy? Your faith. He's trying to destroy your faith. And so what, what do we do? We learn ways to strengthen our faith. Let me close with a few points of application reality. Number one, we nurture, we strengthen our faith by reading the word of God. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen says, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me the joy and delight of my heart. And so if you want to strengthen the resolve of your faith, nurture that faith by daily reading the Word of God. Number two, we nurture our faith by studying the Word of God. It's one thing to read the Word. It's quite another to study the Word. Number three, we nurture our faith by meditating on the Word of God. The psalmist says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Number four, we nurture our faith by memorizing the word of God. The psalmist said, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Next, we nurture our faith by gathering together as we are now. And sitting under the ministry of the word of God. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I have been so, so encouraged every Tuesday morning to see a whole horde of women coming to Christ Fellowship. 
And then another group of women coming Tuesday evening for Bible study where women are being equipped and edified and encouraged as they come together, as they gather together as sisters in Christ to, to learn the Word of God. On October 20th, Ironman will begin once again this year. And I want to address the men directly and also the young men, that if you've not signed up for Ironman, today would be a great day to do it. In your bulletin, you have a sign-up sheet. You can fill out that sign-up sheet and either give it to me or one of the ushers or take it to the front office. But that's addressing men. That's easy. This morning, I want to address women. And I don't mean to cause a problem for the men, but I'm going to. And I want the men just to shut off just for a minute. I want to address the women and ask the women, would you do me a favor? And if you're up to it, if you're not up to a challenge, don't worry about it. But I hope you're all up to a challenge. On your way home today or at the dinner table, would you look your husband in the eye and say, Honey, have you signed up for Iron Man? No, actually I haven't. What about you, honey? Are you going to take the challenge of the pastor to come to Iron Man? Because this is a chance for men to gather together to read the word and study the word, to study theology, to gather together, to pray together, to enjoy fellowship with one another. And I believe this year will be an absolutely crucial time for the men who come together in Iron Man. We will meet on October 20th at 730 in the morning. And we'll do that twice a month all the way through the spring. So I want to commend that to you and encourage you to use Iron Man as one of the very important means of, of taking up your shield of faith. Finally, we nurture our faith by standing firm in the faith. The Bible tells us be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. I remember I was invited to preach at a men's retreat a few years ago, and we took the whole weekend to unpack that verse, 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen. It's that important. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, not that we lord, lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. Peter, a man who had wobbly faith from time to time, but he finished strong, said in 1 Peter 5, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let me close by talking straight just for a moment about faith. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you possess saving faith. Each one of us possesses a faith, if we're Christians, that also fluctuates from time to time. Some days our faith is strong. Some days our faith is rock solid. But some days we find our faith is weak and wavering and tottering. It's in those moments that the arch enemy of our souls will do anything he can to weaken the effectiveness of our faith, to marginalize our faith, and to even destroy our faith. In a book that has deeply impacted me, Desiring God by John Piper, Dr. Piper says, There is no true joy without faith. 
Faith is born and sustained by the word of God, and out of faith grows the flower of joy. And here's what I want you to hear. Satan's number one objective is to destroy the joy of our faith. One of the most important lessons I've learned over the last 30 years is this. John Piper says, faith is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. You say, but pastor, isn't faith believing in God? Yes, it's believing in God. That's the basic and biblical definition. But take it one step further. Faith is being satisfied with all that God is for me in Christ. The flip side of this kind of faith is unbelief. You either have faith or you struggle with unbelief. One writer says all the sinful states of our hearts are owing to unbelief in God's superabounding grace. All of our sin comes from failing to be satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. Misplaced shame, anxiety, despondency, covetousness, lust, bitterness, impatience, pride. These all sprout from the root of unbelief in the promises of God. And all this is to suggest that when we fail to believe the promises of God, what we do in all reality is we surrender the very armor that God has given to protect us. And so may you and I, may we commit to to taking up the shield of faith so that we have divine and supernatural ability to extinguish every flaming arrow that the enemy hurls in our direction. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the shield of faith. We thank you for the victory that we have in the shield of faith, which all points to Christ and his gospel and his substitutionary work on the cross. God, I pray that you would embolden each follower of Christ this morning, even as we participate in the Lord's Supper. I pray that we would have a strengthened faith that our faith would be resolute, that our faith would be strong, that as we leave this morning, we would leave donning our, our shield of faith that you have given to be used in the Christian life. May we be faithful in the exercise of this very important act, taking up our shield of faith. May you encourage this, your people, whatever individuals are struggling with, whatever temptations they're battling, may you enable them by your almighty power as they contemplate the, the efficacy, the effectiveness of the mighty shield of faith. First in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.